We're going to be looking in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19 tonight. And uh, we have been looking at a series of messages that are built around the thoughts and theological themes that are suggested in the great old hymn, Amazing Grace. I've told you this is the 250th anniversary of this hymn written by uh, John Newton. It actually was a poem first. It was read publicly, actually, on New Year's night. A message, special message delivered on New Year's uh, for his church uh, back in 1772, and so, or 1773. So now it is exactly 250 years since its public, uh, um, whatever, <laughs> uh, I want to say proclamation, but that not be, uh, anyway, uh, it's a great old hymn. And tonight we're going to look at uh, the expression joy and peace. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Let's stand together as we read God's word together. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. May God bless the reading of his word tonight is my prayer. You may be seated. I'll get to that rest of that verse later. We have been considering this, and we're now tonight on the fifth stanza, not a very well-known one. It says this, Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. When I thought of a life within the veil, I thought immediately of our text tonight, which speaks of entering into that presence behind the veil. To the Jewish readers of the book of Hebrews, that concept would have evoked powerful imagery because the area behind the veil in the temple was, of course, the holiest of all, the holy of holies. Inside was the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of it was the mercy seat. The high priest would enter into that place. And the high priest alone. And he would make an atonement there. Both for his own sins and for the sins of the people. The holiest of all. The holy of holies. You'll remember of course that. When Jesus died on the cross, that veil was ripped in two from top to bottom. We can only imagine what the witnesses of that event must have thought. Or what those who saw the aftermath of it must have thought. I can picture in my mind some old Jewish priest backing up with his hand on his oh, gasping. Oh no. Oh no. The veil was rent in two. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom. Yeah. You know what that meant? It meant that Judaism as a means of approaching God had been rendered forever obsolete. So the veil to the holiest, the holy of holies... But it spoke powerfully to them of the presence of God. For all those many centuries, it had stood there, first inside the tabernacle and then inside the temple, as a constant reminder God is holy, 
we're not. The veil was there to tell them one thing. Stay away. Stay out. God is holy. You're not. But the writer of the book of Hebrews would write to them of this new priest we have. A priest after the order of Melchizedek. And how Christ then as the high priest after his order was able to enter the veil. And though that veil in the temple was torn in two, that was not the one that the writer of the book of Hebrews was talking about when he said that he entered into the presence behind the veil. And he would make that clear in successive verses as he would go on and talk about not the one of the figures that were made by men's hands, but instead he would enter into the true holiest of all. That is the very throne room of God himself. And he would there not deliver the blood of a sacrifice as the high priest of the Old Testament did. But with his own blood. He would make an atonement for our sins. This was not one that was going to have to be repeated. This was done once for all. Amen. Once for all. Having obtained, the writer of Hebrews tells us in that glorious language, eternal redemption for us. That's just got a ring to it, doesn't it? Eternal redemption for us. No more of that year-by-year stuff, but eternal redemption. As a result of that, then, we have this presence that has entered into the Veil, we have entered. This hope we have, he says, as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. We have an anchor then that is anchored in the presence behind the veil. Now, any fisherman knows that just because you have an anchor doesn't mean much. Just because you have an anchor deployed doesn't mean much. The question is, will it hold? Will it hold? Let me tell you tonight, this one will hold. No wave, no storm, no wind is ever going to dislodge it. We have an anchor. An anchor that the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us is a hope of the soul. And it enters then into the presence of the veil, the actual presence of God. Paul would write of this in Ephesians chapter 2. Where he began by telling us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, And we were walking in them, though we were dead, in which we also walked according to the power of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were walking, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were living in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, just as the rest. Oh, but God. (laughs) But God, who is rich in mercy, even for the great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us. I like that old King James word, quickened us. It means make alive, the quickening. (laughs) He's made us alive. Even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive in Christ. For by grace are you saved. And, and, he says, it's Ephesians 2, he hath raised us up together. And made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now the interesting thing is when you read that, 
all of those verbs speak of accomplished action. Never once said, he's going to raise us up together. Didn't say that. It's already done. He has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So how's it feel tonight being walking around here in heaven, huh? Doesn't feel very heavenly to you much tonight? Well, I guarantee you one thing. I hope my knee don't still hurt when I get to heaven. I, uh, I, no, no, we're not in heaven. We're not. We're in Cabot, Arkansas. It's pretty close to heaven. <laughs> oh, amen, but it's not heaven. No. Well, did Paul just miss that? Mm-mm. No, you see, there is a very real sense in which we have been raised up together and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. You see, when you're saved, the Bible says you are in Christ Jesus. You're in him. Now, we may have to wait a bit before that truth all plays out for us, but it doesn't make it any less true. He has raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And though we have not physically experienced that yet, though our feet are still planted here, right, well on terra firma, though we are still on this planet earth and still in this body, yet there is a spiritual sense in which we've been raised every bit as much as Jesus Christ has. Because you see, when he died and we believed on him, his death became our death. When we believed on him, his burial became our burial. When we believed on him, his resurrection became our resurrection. And that means, according to Romans chapter 6, that his new life, then his resurrection life, is our new life. We have a new life in Christ. Raised up together, made to sit together in the heavenly places, a new life in Christ. Talked about it this morning, a new creation in Christ. All of these things are true. And yet here we are, still walking around, still struggling through this life in many ways, in many days. So what kind of an application do we make of all of this? John Newton was exactly right when he said, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. But the writer of the book of Hebrews says more. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. Made in high priest forever after the order of the Melchizedek. So because Jesus has entered the presence behind the veil for us and made intercession for our sins and offered his own blood then as the atonement or satisfaction for our sins, we are given this glorious invitation in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I don't want to lose you here. 
I just want to stop then and walk you through the argument that the writer of the book of Hebrews makes. We saw it in Hebrews chapter 6. He said, we have an anchor. We have this anchor of the soul that is our hope. That is provided for us because Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, has entered into the very presence of God and made atonement for us. So that we don't need, like the Old Testament Jews did, we don't, we don't need somebody, a high priest, to go into the presence of God for us. We don't need that. We don't have to go to any priest, anybody, to go into the presence of God for us. There's a lot of Christians didn't get that memo, but I want you to remind yourself tonight. No, we don't need that. We don't, we don't need that because Jesus Christ has done that. And he remains then in the presence of God. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He is always on duty. He's never off. He is always there interceding for us. Wherefore, the same writer would tell us that he's able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. So he talks about that presence within the veil. And he tells us that we've all got access to it. Then don't miss the significance of it. So he said, since all this is true, let's draw near. Let's draw near to God. You see, it's all well and good if we could say then that, you know, when I die, I'm going to be with Jesus forever. That's a wonderful thing, isn't that to say? When the rapture comes, I'll tell you, all God's people are going to go home and we're going to be with the Lord and we're going to be together forever and ever. Amen. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Oh, what a great truth that is. Is that all we've got? Is that all we've got? Speaks well for the sweet by and by, but what about the nasty here and now? I'm not disparaging what we've got because it is a great thing. But in a way, you see, we could kind of identify with the Jewish economy. There they were. There was the Holy of Holies. Inside that place was a place that symbolized to them the presence of God among his people, but they couldn't go there. There was this veil between them and God. And in a way, there's still a veil between us and God. You know what it is? Yeah, this, this body, this flesh. That's why the old hymn writer talked about this veil of flesh one day. I'll drop and rise and seize the everlasting prize. Uh, the body, in fact, the Bible tells us very plainly, no uncertain terms, to be absent from the body. Is to be what? Yeah. So then while we remain in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Yeah. We, 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 we don't go and even though all these things have happened to us, still this body and all of its sinfulness, flesh and blood, Paul told us, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We still wait. Wait in anticipation. So what makes the, the new covenant, the better covenant, what makes it better than the old one? 
how was the writer of the book of Hebrews then going to combat the, the potential of these Jewish believers who were abandoning the church, going back to the temple, believing in Christ? Yeah, we still believe. We know Jesus is Messiah, but we're just not comfortable rubbing shoulders with all these Gentiles in church. It's just too much change. We're going we're gonna to go. How was he going to combat that? He did it. And he did it very plainly. And this is a summation of his argument right here in Hebrews 10. All right. You ready for it? Here it is. Let us draw nigh unto God. Let us draw near unto God. And how does he tell us to do that? Well... Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. You see, there is a place today where God has promised to meet with all of his people who will show up to meet with him. Not just the high priest who has access to the place where God promised to meet with his people. But all of them. Doesn't take a whole bunch. Jesus said, where two or three of you will gather together in my name there while I be in the midst of them. And if you look at the context of that passage, he's talking without question about the New Testament church. Gathering together in its local form. I still hear people today, a lot of them, who have completely given up on the local church. And some of them are spiritual leaders, writers, singers. People who are very, very involved in some ways, by all appearances, in, in Bible activities and having things to do with God. And yet they'll tell you in no uncertain terms. Oh, I'm, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't attend a local church. I'm a member of the body of Christ, they say. And I would say to all of that thinking, they need to read Hebrews 10. Because Hebrews 10 takes this whole argument and he draws it down here and he tells them, you don't need to forsake the assembly, let us draw nigh unto God. So let's just anchor down here for a few minutes tonight. I won't keep you long. Uh, there's a method that he talks about, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So when we approach God, Understanding and aware that God has promised to meet with us here. Um, then the first thing is required to draw near to God. If we want to draw near to God when we come to church on Sunday, there must be a true heart. Or on Wednesday. Why do we do this? Why do we gather? Do we gather because we know that God has promised to meet with us when we're here? That God has promised and that he keeps that promise by the Holy Spirit that God the Holy Spirit has promised to meet with us here. Now I don't mind telling you tonight that I've had some wonderful times alone with just me and the Lord. 
but the, by far and away, the most glorious experiences that I've ever had in my life with the presence and power of God has been in church. Over and over, I mean, it's not even close. It's not even close. Jesus promised that where two or three of us gather, he'd be here with us, and he is in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're not encountering or experiencing God as you gather together in worship, our first inclination is to blame the church, but it may not be the church. A lot of times it's us. Do we come together then with a true heart? Do we come together with full assurance? Uh, Do we have the faith then that God is indeed going to meet with us here, that this is something vital, something important, something that I need in my spiritual life? Uh, The expectation of encountering God in church on Sunday is not born from the singers, though our singers are wonderful and the music is wonderful. uh, That is not where our anticipation comes from. Uh, Though we might have biblical, sound, solid preaching, it is not there. That is where our motivation comes from. Our motivation is born out of having that personal encounter with God. I'm going to meet with Him. Full assurance. Full assurance. Then there must be some personal preparation. Our hearts sprinkled, he said, and bodies washed. Uh, simply refers to the preparation that we should put in personally. Now, the Jews would have understood something about this uh, because there were all kinds of rituals that they had to go through and they did go through uh, that were purification rituals, one of which involved a a ritual bath that they would take in the various pools, uh, especially the pool of Siloam, uh, which is one that was frequently used for these baths before they would go up into the temple and worship God. They wanted to cleanse themselves. But now don't be mistaken. Uh, Water could not wash away sin in the Old Testament any more than it could wash away sin in the New Testament. Water's never washed away sin. Uh, What was that? It was a ritual. And like any ritual, it was a picture of something else. You see, the purification they needed went on in their hearts as they were required then to contemplate where they'd been, what they'd done, and who they'd done it with. They had talked about the places and the things and the, and the filth that they had endured and encountered. Even if you don't indulge yourself in it, folk, we live today in a dirty world. So do they. And they needed to spend some time cleaning their hearts before they went for an encounter with God. We need that too. Write the book of Hebrews and invoke that imagery for us. We come to church without spending that time of personal preparation. We're not going to enjoy it much. In fact, all we're going to get is conviction because the Holy Spirit's going to be telling you, why are you bringing this in my house? Then there's the basis. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's understand that When we are confessing something, we're speaking or saying something. Our confession is Jesus Christ is Lord. Our confession is that I am a believer in Jesus Christ. He is our hope. So that when we approach his presence, whether we're in private or whether we're in a corporate capacity, we do so based on, completely based on our confidence 
in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have confidence, not because of what I have done, not because I'm worthy, but because he is worthy. We have confidence because of the faithfulness of Christ and the effectiveness of his completed work. What does that mean? That means that Jesus inspires us to worship, he equips us to worship, and he enables us to worship. All of it is wrapped up in him. It's all about who he is and what he has done and what he has done for us. He is both in the inspiration and the application of our worship together. There'll be a thousand things that try to pull your attention away from Jesus Christ when you come into his presence. There was an old story I've told you before and I really want to tell it again. About a man and his wife going home from church one day. And the wife said, did you see what so-and-so was wearing? No, no. The husband said, I didn't, I didn't see it. Did you notice that that young couple sitting up there and they were just all over each other and sitting so close to holding hands? No, no, no. I didn't notice. Did you notice that new guy that sister so-and-so had with her? No, no. I didn't notice. Wife just kind of grunted in exasperation and said, Well, I don't know why you even go to church. <laughs> yeah. That's an oldie but a goodie. You say, I've heard you tell that before. That's okay. The point's still valid. When we come to church, it's real easy to get our eyes on everything but the one thing we've come to church for, and that is to worship. Jesus Christ, to reflect on what he's done for us, to remember who he is. And really, that should be enough for us as God's people to inspire us and enable us and equip equip us to worship. If we rely on something else to get us into a worshiping mood, then we're off track. If you have to have a certain kind of music or a certain atmosphere, a certain kind of lighting, a certain kind of preaching... In order to experience God, in order to worship Him effectively, you need to think about yourself and where you are. You see, what we need every now and then is to just learn a long lesson from that woman who had an issue of blood. She had spent everything she had. She was completely in poverty. She had lost her marriage. She was unclean. If she had family, she would lost their relationship with them. She was unclean. She had no friends. She was unclean. She couldn't go to temple. She was unclean. And this had gone on year after year after year. Can you feel just a little bit of that desperation as she's reasoning with herself? Now, I can't touch Jesus because I'm unclean. But if I get him in that crowd, maybe I can just sneak up behind him and just get down on the hem of his garment. Of course, Jesus just messed all of her plans up. You know, I tell you, he, he wasn't going to. There he was going to rescue that dying little baby girl. And he stopped in the middle of it all. Who touched me? Even the disciples thought, wow, this is ridiculous. Jesus, you're in a crowd. Everybody's touching you. What are you talking about? Oh, no. There's a big difference between being jostled and being touched. Jesus was touched, and he knew it. 
And he called that woman out because she had been healed. You see, every now and then we need to think about how desperate she was just to get close to Jesus. And when we, when we do that, we may be getting a sense of what the writer of the book of Hebrews was talking about when he said, hey, uh, let us draw nigh to God. We can draw nigh to God. Not just once or, or not just one person once a year. We can draw nigh to God. Let's do it. And then the practice of it. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Isn't it interesting that God did not leave this in an individualistic capacity? But as we draw nigh to God, we consider one another to encourage, to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is a matter of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more. So as we assemble together then in corporate worship, seeking the presence of God, we are considerate of others. Uh, older Christians and younger Christians need to learn to be considerate of each other and folks all in between. We must learn to be considerate toward guests, toward visitors, uh, so that we are open to them, so that we don't just come and, and gather up and with all of our buddies and enjoy a time of fellowship with them and, and leave that first-time visitor sitting over there by themselves. We don't, we don't need to do that. We need to consider one another. Look around. Consider who's here, who's not here. Consider one another and encourage one another. Above all, we need to consider the lost. Our goal in considering others is to stir each other up in love and good works. Too often we get stirred up in a really bad way. But this teaches us to stir us up to love and good works and exhort one another, to encourage one another. The word exhort is the same word the word comforter is derived from. It calls for us to come alongside one another and help one another and encourage one another. It's not just an isolated experience. As we draw near to God, we draw near to others. This has often been illustrated by the tuning of a piano, which in ancient times, I'm sure modern times, it's all done digitally, but in ancient times it was done with a tuning fork. What did they do? They tuned that one key to that one tone and then tuned all the others to the same one. And what that means for us in the corporate body life of the church is that if we all draw closer to Jesus Christ, guess what happens? We draw close to each other too. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, God had a good idea when he invented the local church. He did it for our good. We ignore it to our peril. And when he called on us and told us, to not forsake it, he told us that we were going to need it more and not less. Need more of it, not less of it, as we got closer and closer to his coming. The whole point then of this passage in the book of Hebrews is that through Jesus Christ, God has made a way for us all to join him behind the veil with full access to him through Jesus Christ. And while John Newton wrote so long ago of our anticipation of a life of joy and peace within the veil, 
We need also to be reminded that when the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote about that presence behind the veil, that we don't have to wait until we get to heaven to have joy and peace. Because that is exactly what God intends for his churches to be. To be a place of joy and peace. You say, well, Brother Rich, you had not been to some of the churches I've been to. <laughs> yeah, I have too. <laughs> yeah, I have. <clears throat> some churches are anything but joyful. Some churches are anything but peaceful. That doesn't mean that God's plan is wrong. It means that people's wrong and the devil is active. Since God intends for his churches to be a place where we experience his presence and worship Jesus Christ as we come together to honor him and glorify him and experience him, the devil does everything he can do to attack the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make them anything but what God intends for them to be. And he often does. He often does. Sometimes it's very obvious. Sometimes it's not so obvious. So tonight, we can all look in this great passage and think about that presence that we enter behind the veil in that place of joy and peace. And let's pray that God helps us to continue that here at Faith Baptist Church.